Some years ago, when Becky and I were much younger and before our children, I led a, made a new friend who happened to be an insurance agent. And of course, when we became friends, people began telling me, he says, oh, he just wants to be your friend because he wants to be your insurance agent. And he was building his business, and um, one night we asked him to come over to our home and to talk to us about insurance. And of course, in those days, I wasn't able to buy any insurance. I wasn't able to buy health insurance. I wasn't able to buy life insurance. I was considered too great a risk because of my health. I still remember the celebration that Becky and I had when we were able to buy a life insurance policy. I was able to buy a small policy, paid through the nose for it to, on my life, but I still couldn't get health insurance at the time. And, um, but we did. We became really good friends, and we had a lot of conversations, and they would have us over to their home. We'd go to the, they'd come to our house, our little church apartment that we had. But I remember we were talking because neither one of him, him or his wife, were followers of Jesus yet. And so one night we were talking, and I said to him, I said, you know, you're always talking to me about the life, the death benefits that come with our life insurance policy for Becky. And I said, unfortunately, we don't have anything like that for her right now. And yeah, he's, and then he get talking about death benefits again. I talk about Jesus, he talked about insurance. And so finally, I, I wasn't trying to maneuver it. I wasn't, it wasn't a planned moment, but I realized here was one of those moments that I could talk to him about faith. And I said, well, let me ask you this. Have you ever considered the death benefit of being a Christian? And I was able to turn the table in our conversation, and it took him off guard, and he was surprised. I says, you talk to your clients, because I've asked you to kind of teach me how you do sales and things like that. I said, you talk to your clients about death benefits, but have you ever thought about the death benefit of being a Christian? Make a long story short, my friend did become a passionate follower of Christ. His wife became a passionate follower of Christ, and they were such good friends to us, and we loved them. But one of the greatest benefits of life that you and I have as followers of Jesus, and, and I want to welcome those of you on our online campus, if you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the greatest benefits of, of following Christ is the benefit of heaven when you and I die. It's the benefit of hope when we face death. The, the Bible says death is our enemy. Death is not our friend. We don't welcome death. We don't look for death. It, death is our, it's an enemy that Christ has defeated for us. And so when I consider society and in our culture today, how many people consider suicide, maybe because they're in ill health or maybe because they've given up hope on life, I want to say to them, death is not your friend. Death is your enemy. Christ died to destroy death. But I do want to say, to, <clears throat> say this to you after 50 years of preaching the gospel, and that's this, that there is a lot of death in your future. Those of you that are my age or older, you know that. Because death has a way of stripping you of some of those most important and loving relationships that you have a wife, a husband, a mother, a father, a son, or a daughter. And if you're, if you're young today and you're listening, I want you to know that you have to face a lot of death in your future. I, I was at a funeral yesterday for an 18-year-old boy that I've known since he was a munchkin. I've held him. I've wrestled with him. I've played with him. He, he would come sit in my study sometime and just sit there, and, and sometimes we would talk, and I, I watched as teenagers passed by his casket yesterday, and my heart was broken. 
But the text I want to take to you as I talk to you be what happens after I die. And that word after is important because we're, we're not going to talk at length about eternity, but we are going to talk about what happens after I die and how you and I who are living handle death and what happens to us when we die. And so our text this morning bring a lot of hope to us. So if you would, out of respect and reverence for the word of the Lord, would you stand with me this morning as we go to God's word? First of all, in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, a lot of people ask me, why hasn't Jesus come back yet? And we believe Jesus Christ is returning. We can't wait for that to happen. But in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises. Some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. So if you want to know why Jesus hasn't come back yet, it's because of the mercy and the grace of God of wanting to save people. Now, this next text is about such enduring hope that many of us have built our lives upon this. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. What will happen to the believers who have died? Important phrase. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Underline that when you sit down in your outline or in your Bible this morning. God will bring back with him the believers who have died. You see, when I look at your body, I don't see the real you. You don't see me in this real body. I, I've never seen the real you because the real you, your eye, not this eye, but your capital I, you live inside that body. You were created spirit, soul, and body. Our spirit is where we commune with God. Our, our soul is our mind, our thoughts. Our body is what we live in. But these bodies are important, and God will bring back your real eye to be with your resurrected body. Isn't that good news when he returns? So what's happening in that in-between time? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, these texts are meant to inspire us, to give us hope, and to make us discerning of the times that we live in. So I ask you now, Holy Spirit, help us to listen carefully to the Word so that our faith may grow. Help me to say only what you want me to say, no more and no less. And would you give people the faith who don't know you yet to cross the line and give their hearts to you, I pray in Christ's name. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. You know, through my ministry over the years, I've seen so many ways that people deal with death. There's the stoic way that people deal with death, where you show no emotion, you don't cry, you don't weep, you don't sorrow. If you remember reading the Iliad when you were in high school, one character says to another, bear up, don't give in to anger, grief, nothing will come of sorrowing for your son, nor will you raise him up before you die. That's the stoic expression. Don't show any emotion. Shut down your emotions. Have a stiff upper lip. Be strong because it's not going to do you any good anyway. But that's not how we were created. We were created as, as emotional beings as well. The father yesterday that I was talking about just threw his arms around me and grieved and cried and wasn't afraid to show his emotions. It's a broken heart. My heart was broken. There were tears in my eyes. As I held him and I no longer just 
touch people's bodies, not because it bothers me, but I know they're not there. That's the house they lived in. But I laid my hands on this boy that I had played with that at 18 years old, tragically, his life ended. I made a promise because a few months ago, I felt the Holy Spirit really leading me to preach on this subject. And I was driving by a home, and it's Halloween season, and people are putting up such ghoulish things around their house. And I, I rode by one that was actually shocking, and I just gasped. And because there was this ghoul that was holding a baby by its ankles with its throat slit. And I thought, what is there to celebrate? And why would somebody even put something so macabre in their front yard for little children to come asking for candy? But we live in a culture that glorifies violence and death and has no fear of eternity because they have a very secular approach to life. And there's nothing to be afraid of. There's a life cycle. We die. And so I'm sure that the homeowner thought this is just a way of mocking death because when you die, and I've picked up these brochures in funeral homes, I've read about it from other secular writers, very popular writers, that when you die, that's just it. You no longer exist. Your body and your chemicals nourish the soil and and plants grow as a result of your body fertilizing the ground and then other living beings can eat the plants and the life cycle goes on. Peter Kreeft, who is a philosopher, professor of philosophy at Boston College, addressed this. He said, no one knows that this is how it happens. He said, and yet it's become the modern secular approach. And he told the story of a mother who's whose sister's son had died, seven-year-old son, and her son was seven years old, and they were best of playmates. His mother wasn't a Christian. And so she told her son there was no God and that when you die, that was just the end of life, and your body fertilized the ground so that animals could eat the plants and people could eat the plants, that basically we became fertilizer and we shouldn't be afraid of death. It was a part of the life cycle. And her seven-year-old son burst out into tears and ran from the room saying, I don't want him to be fertilizer. For even a seven-year-old boy saw through the fallacy. God has created you to know that there is eternity. God has created you to know that there's more to life after we die. And this seven-year-old boy caught something I felt like in reading this story that Kreeft included in one of his books that was so important. He caught what the real value of life is. So I asked myself a question as I was preparing this message. What gives meaning to my life? Obviously, my relationship with Jesus Christ, but my relationship with Becky gives meaning to my life. I'm a coward. I, I would rather die first than Becky die first. I can't imagine living life without her. Uh, secondly, my children and my grandchildren give meaning to my life. My relationships with you and with our congregation and my friends and family, it's those relationships that give such meaning to my life. It's another reason that death is our enemy because in the end, death strips me of all those relationships of people that I love and I miss. And in the end, death will one day strip me from their lives as they wait on me in eternity. 
You see, people fear death because they don't know what happens after death. Epicurus, the Greek philosopher, said this, what men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not. In other words, what people fear is that death is not the end, but there is something that comes after death. And Epicurus was a Stoic. Rousseau said, the French philosopher, he who pretends to look on death without fear lies. In other words, if you say you're not afraid of death, Rousseau is saying you're lying because Rousseau was convinced we didn't know what happened after life. I have driven in a lot of rainstorms growing up in the South, monsoons, tornadoes, hurricanes. I was comfortable driving in rainstorms. I had never driven in a blizzard until I moved to Detroit, Michigan. And all of a sudden, there was a whiteout on the interstate, and I had to back down with my family in the car to 35 miles an hour, and we couldn't see, and I knew it was unsafe to pull off the road because nobody else could see, and it was late at night, and finally I got behind an 18-wheeler that was going very slow in the middle of Ohio, and I followed him all the way to Detroit, Michigan. Do you know how it longly takes to drive from the middle of Ohio to exit 32 in Michigan? It's a long time, but at least I could see. And, and, and this is what life is like for people who don't understand what happens after we die. It's like driving blind. It's like driving in a blizzard. It's like having your windshields blackened out. It's like trying to figure out what you do when your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, your grandchild dies. Well, Paul tells us in our text of hope, he says, number one, grieve, grieve. I think one of the best examples of grief that I can find in the Bible is Joseph. When Jacob died, the Bible records that Joseph just flung himself on Jacob's body. He held the body of the father that he loved, and he wept, and he mourned. And for 70 days, 70 days, all of Egypt mourned with Joseph and his family. They mourned the death of Jacob. There were 40 days for embalming, and then 30 days of formal mourning for him. And then after the death of, of, of Jacob, and after the 70 days of mourning, they were asked, Joseph asked Pharaoh, can I take my father back to our homeland, to Canaan, to bury him? And, of course, Pharaoh gave him permission, and Egyptians went with them, and they mourned the whole way. And when they got to Canaan, they mourned another seven days, and then Joseph and his brothers took him up into the mountains where they buried him. You see, if someone took that long to grieve today, we would want to give them medication. We would want to say they're out of their mind. Grief is real. And the Bible tells us to grieve. When Pastor Rick and Kay Warren's son committed suicide at 27 years old, a young man that had had some emotional problems and was very disturbed, Kay wrote a Facebook post that said, truest friends and helpers are those who wait for the griever to emerge from the darkness that swallowed them alive without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient. Listen to that. Without growing afraid, anxious, or impatient about their friend, they don't pressure their friend to be the old familiar person they used to be. They're willing to accept that things are different, embrace the now scarred one they love, and are confident about their compassionate, non-demanding presence is the surest expression of God's mercy to their suffering friend. They're okay with the messy and the slow and the few answers 
and they never say, move on. When we go back to our homes in Georgia and we go back to Becky's home and my home, there's always a difference. Things are not the same since our fathers have gone to heaven. Things are just different and we grieve. We don't still grieve like we used to almost eight years ago when my father died, but we grieve. I walk through the house and sometimes I can hear my dad's voice in my imagination. Sometimes I feel like I can smell his cologne that he always wore. And if you're interested in what that was, all my life my daddy wore Old Spice aftershave lotion. And I just to me, that's just thinking about daddy when I smell Old Spice. And I walked into their bathroom the last time I was home and I noticed that my mother still had my dad's side of the vanity the same way it was when he passed away. And I thought, there's just some things you don't let go of. It's not a memorial site. It's just that this is how we grieve and we process. But the Bible tells us that we grieve with hope. Best example I can find of this in the Bible is Jesus Jesus, knowing that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus, knowing that he's going to die for our sins upon the cross so that if we put our faith in him, we will have eternal life. We will be immortal. Paul writes about that, and we won't have time to get into that today. But boy, what a promise that is of immortality when we're raised with our our resurrection bodies. We will be immortal. But Jesus gets to the tomb of Lazarus and And you know that very famous scripture, the shortest verse in the Bible, say it with me, Jesus wept. But if you go down to verse 38, the Bible says that Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Have you ever thought about that? Why was Jesus angry? He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew a miracle was going to happen. The reason was, is because death is our enemy. If you don't get angry at the way that Putin is bombing and killing Ukrainians. There's something wrong with you. If you don't get angry at the way that, that the, the, the militia are killing people in Iran who simply want freedom of speech, there's something wrong with you. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. There's a righteous cause for anger where we don't sin. And Jesus was angry. Why? Because death was never intended for you and for me. His grief and his anger says two things to me. This is not the way life is supposed to be. And every time I drive into a cemetery when I preach a funeral, I remind myself that every Christian in this place, one day the trumpet is going to sound. One day the dead in Christ are going to rise. We which are alive and remain, we will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord forever and ever. It's what Paul just wrote in our text of hope. As I drive into those cemeteries, I also say this to myself, and if I'm riding with the funeral director, I'm usually quiet about it, but I've talked to them about it. In God's creative plan, there was never supposed to be a cemetery on the planet. Can you imagine that? God created you to live forever. Why do we have this hope? Because God said he would bring back with him the believers who had died. I am the resurrection and the life, he told Martha and Mary. Look at me. Don't you miss this. Jesus faced your enemy and conquered him. Can you imagine the rejoicing in Europe and America 
if suddenly Putin was brought down by the Russians and they said enough of the killing, enough of the murder, enough of the nuclear threats, there would be ticker tape parades, people around the world would rejoice, investments would pour into Russia because somebody stood up for what was right and pulled down a tyrant. Can you imagine what would happen if somehow or another the murderous Red Guard was pulled down in Iran? Can you imagine what would happen Jesus faced your enemy and he conquered him. Never be ashamed of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen this morning. The third thing is acknowledge my mortality. Acknowledge. I guess because life has always been somewhat tenuous for me. It's one of the things that I talked to my kids about as they were growing up, and I never wanted them to be caught off guard or shocked or to feel like that somehow or another God had failed. As a pastor and a youth pastor, I've dealt with kids like that who were bitter and angry at God, but we were totally honest. Peter Craig, a, a theologian who was working, he died at 44 years old. He was working on a three-volume tome on the Psalms and was in a car accident and died and before he could complete his work. But Peter wrote these words as he was writing about the book of Psalms. Life is extremely short, and if its meaning is to be found, it must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. Listen to that. Its meaning must be found in the purpose of God, the giver of all life. So why is my relationship with Becky, our children, our grandchildren, with you, with our congregation, with my neighbors and friends, it's because my first and foremost relationship was with Christ. Christ saved me, and when I found his purpose, that even my relationships have greater meaning. I'm able to love more. I'm able to serve better. Life is amplified. It's called eternal life, or Jesus called it abundant life. It is amplified by our decision to follow Christ as our Lord and Savior. But at the same time, the teacher in Ecclesiastes tells you and me, we must acknowledge our mortality, for the wise and the foolish both die, the smartest of men and the most foolish of men, the smartest of women and the most silly of women all die. And yet in Ecclesiastes, the teacher goes on to say in chapter 3 and verse 11, God has made everything beautiful for his own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. He has planted eternity. Circle that this in your outline this morning. He has planted eternity. You know eternity is in your heart. Some of you that are sitting in this room, I've walked with you through family death. Some of you that are sitting in this room, I've walked through you with life-threatening surgeries or life-threatening diseases. Some of you in this room that are here today, there have been times when the doctor gave you no hope, and yet you are here today. But in those moments, those of you in this room this morning, you and I have confessed our faith in Jesus Christ that no matter what happens, we know that if we breathe our last breath, we do not die. The body quits working, but we are in the presence of the Lord. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And as I look around this room this morning, I'm reminded of all those times God has planted eternity. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, Epicurus, Rousseau, Peter Kreeft, Peter Craig, all bear witness to the fact this morning in this message that God has put eternity in your heart and you know it. Epicurus said it best, we don't fear annihilation, we fear there may be something after we die. And you see, it's just simply this. 
I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. Would you say that with me? I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. Say it again. I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. I don't want you to forget that. So look at your neighbor this morning. If you don't know them, don't say this to them because that's kind of weird. But just look at your neighbor. Pat, I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. Say that to your neighbor. I will either suffer or rejoice after I die. Now, look at your neighbor and say this. You will either suffer or rejoice after you die. So, Ben, you will either suffer or rejoice after you die. Now, that really brings home the bacon, doesn't it? It's one thing for me to say, I will either suffer or rejoice. It's quite another thing to look at my neighbor or my friend or my son or my daughter and to talk about that. You see, hell is a real and eternal place. Twelve of the 20 direct references to hell in the New Testament, they came from the very mouth of Jesus to us. During COVID, when I was having to preach so often funerals, I funeral after funeral, some for people that I knew were passionate followers of Christ, some that the family said in my study, and says, we have no idea, they, they never professed any profession of faith in Christ, and and we wept and we cried together. It made all the difference in the world <clears throat> in those funerals. One Sunday morning, I shook the hand or hugged. Ron just came up and grabbed me and gave me a big hug. And before the week is over, Ron, who was healthy, and was asking me to pray for his sick wife that morning. He slipped to, to eternity from COVID. And I remember telling Becky, I don't know if I can take another funeral I, to bear up. And my heart is breaking and heavy. And yet, I especially for those that don't know Jesus. During that time, I read a book by a formal liberal pastor, a formal liberal man who didn't believe in heaven, didn't believe in hell, didn't believe in the virgin birth, and why you would be a pastor and why you would choose this vocation if you reject all of that. But he got saved. He was born again, and, and he wrote a book, and he, <clears throat> he talked about this. He says, hell is real. I hate to admit it, but hell is real. And he's telling his congregation and he's telling his friends that he's lied to all these years that hell is real even though I hate to admit it. You see, the choices I make on earth, they determine when I'm going to spend eternity. So you say, Pastor, what's the truth about hell? Hell is a place of suffering. Hell is a place of eternal separation. Hell is a place of spiritual suffering. Emotionally in hell, you'll suffer because you know you're there. It was your own fault. You could have trusted in Christ. You could have followed Christ. But in hell, you, will have, you won't blame me. You won't blame your mom, your dad. You won't blame your, your, your brother or your sister. You won't blame that hypocritical television evangelist you saw. You will blame yourself. That's why it's such a place of emotional suffering and eternal torment. It's a place of re relational suffering because in hell, you will be by yourself tormented in the eternal flames of hell where the worm dieth not, the scripture says. I like myself. I, I'm not down on myself. I don't want you to be down. I want you to like yourself. But I'm going to tell you, my wife has been gone with some of the ladies from the church to the Design for Life conference in Springfield. I am ready for that woman to get home. No offense, Ben, I like spending time with you, but son, I miss my wife. I can't imagine being alone. God said it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for a woman to be alone. And yet hell will be that place of relational suffering 
Because in hell, you really are stripped of all your relationships. And hell is a place of spiritual suffering because you're separated from the presence of God. Remember in our text, we read it, shut out from the very presence of God. Whether you recognize it, whether you realize it or not now, you live in the goodness of God. You may not even be a follower of Jesus. You may be anti-everything that I believe in. And if you can disprove Christianity, don't follow Christ. You can't. It's impossible. You can't scientifically disprove Christianity. You can't philosophically prove, kiss, Chris, disprove Christianity. Scientists and philosophers admit that. So when people say science is fact, I only believe it's science, they're making a philosophical statement they cannot back up. So when people say that, you know, science has proven that there is nothing, science has never proven that. So you're gambling with your eternity. So hear me this morning because I love you. You live in the goodness of God now. God makes the sun and the rain to come on the just and the unjust. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Hell was not created for human beings. Hell was created for the devil and his followers. But eternity is a place where the choice you make on this earth is magnified millions of times. When I was a teenager, there was a commercial for Burger King, and they just simply said, have it your way, have it your way. And friends, I want you to know, when you get to heaven or when you get to hell, it will be because you either chose God or you rejected God. God is saying to you, have it your way. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord ever from the glory of his might. Please look at me for just a second. Hear what I'm saying. You don't want to be shut out of the presence of God. Because whether you love him or hate him, you're living in his goodness right now. Your life is affected by the choices you make. But if it were not for the goodness of God, your life would be far worse now than what you could ever imagine. But let me get to the part I really want to talk about this morning, and that's heaven. Because you will either suffer or rejoice. Heaven is a place of eternal rejoicing. Heaven is a place of eternal celebration. Moses said to God one time, Moses said, Lord, if your presence is not going to go up with us, then leave us here. Don't take us. Because Moses could not imagine doing anything without the presence of God. I hadn't planned to say that this morning, but in our first service, as we were worshiping this morning, I, it was just that thought arrested me in one of the songs that we were singing about the presence of God. And so I, I stopped the congregation and reminded them that Moses basically said, we won't attempt anything, Lord, without your presence. The glory of God is the presence of God, and in heaven... We are there with the one who loved us more than anyone else. We are there with the one who gave his son for our lives. Heaven is a place of eternal rejoicing and celebration. Some of you need to loosen up and learn how to party right now. Because you take life so seriously, celebrate the goodness of God. The best day of your life, yes, the best day of your life will be magnified millions of times over. I have marveled at the wonders of the new telescope that NASA has in the heavens. We're learning things about our universe we've never seen before. I came home one evening and Becky says, 
you've got to watch this. And she had saved a YouTube channel. And we just, oh, we just get, oh, look at that. The wonders of the universe that God has created. And yet your choices will be magnified so many times. So the Bible tells us that heaven is a place where the angels are rejoicing. You and I are going to re be rejoicing. The Bible tells us that heaven is a place of significance. When the Bible talks about gates of pearls and all the jewels and the golden streets, it, trust me, God is not getting happy about golden streets. What he's talking about is that everything in heaven has significance. Everything in heaven has value. That your importance, that your life to follow Christ, it was important. It's magnified. When I read the book that Randy Alcorn read about heaven that I've recommended to you, and somebody recently said to me, oh, I just can't read that book. It's too long. Would you shake yourself out of your stupor this morning? You're going to spend eternity in heaven. That is a lot better than anything Rick Steves has got on the Travel Channel. Read about heaven. Rejoice in heaven. Because on the new heavens and the new earth, imagine what mountains are going to look like when the earth is healed. Imagine what oceans are going to look like when the earth is healed. Imagine when there's going to be no more cemeteries when the earth is healed. Imagine when there's going to be no more Ebola, no more AIDS, and no more pain, no more crying, no more suffering. Oh, friends, I can't wait to be in the presence of God in heaven. And my greatest joy as I think about it is that my children and my grandchildren and you will be there. Revelation 21 and verse 3 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. We were driving home after Christmas Eve service one year, and that song came on the radio by Alabama, driving home for Christmas. And all of a sudden, all of us in the car were kind of singing the bits and pieces we knew of it, and we were talking about cousins, we were talking about grandparents, we were talking about food, we were talking about the tree, the gifts, they're going to be surprised by this gift, or kids, I wonder what Papa and Granny have got for us this year, that whole idea of going home. Friends, you and I have an eternal home in heaven, and some of us have family and friends and loved ones that are waiting to greet us. Heaven is going to be wonderful. Can you say amen this morning? And I want you to spend your eternity in heaven. Say, Pastor, how do I do that? Well, first of all, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust him with your life. No one cheats death. No one cheats death. No one will escape death except for those that are alive when Jesus returns. Sometimes people try to make it so complicated because I don't want it to be complicated. I, I want it to be as simple as the Scripture says it should be. Read this next verse with me from Acts 16, 31. This is what, when the apostles were asked, how can we be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. Would you read that with me? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. I don't do this often, but if you can follow me with the camera, look at this cross right here. This cross is the price that Christ paid for you. When Jesus Christ died upon this cross, he was dying for your sins and my sins. 
that that separated us from God, when we trust in what Christ did for us, then God forgives us, he saves us, he makes us ready for heaven. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sin. But this is the love of God expressed for you. It's not a piece of jewelry. It's not a, a nice church decoration. But it's a statement of faith that we trust in what Christ did for us. And he did that because he wants you there. And here's the good news. God is going to have a full heaven. Those that have put their faith in him. And when you do that, you face death with confidence. You face death with joy. You face death because you have a new life in Christ. You face death because you've trusted in Jesus. I've been there. I've knocked on that door. I've been right there. I didn't want to go because of the loving relationships. And God in his mercy brought me back. But the death benefit that I had for my relationship with Jesus gave peace to my wife, gave peace to my children. I can still see the kids coming in at night, those three years I was in and out of the hospital, and Ben would flop down there in a chair right beside my bed, beating his brother to the chair, and then he'd just lay his hand on my arm. Ben's got a hand the size of a Smithfield ham, and just feeling his hand there, I was like, I want to live, and he would smile, and we talk, I want to live. That was before he had a cell phone. I want to live. I want to be here with my kids, my wife. But yet I knew I could face death with confidence, my kids, my wife, and finally invest in eternity. Don't wait to live. Don't wait to live. Don't wait to die. Live with joy, live with vision, live with hope, but look forward to eternal joy in heaven. Every joyful thing that happens in my life now, this is how I frame it. Maybe it's because I've gotten old. I didn't think this way when I was younger, but every joyful moment I have in my life now, I think that is going to be so magnified in heaven. Last night, Becky sent me a text they're in Springfield for the Design for Life conference, as I was telling you earlier. And, and um, Chris and Rachel, our son and daughter-in-law, had all the ladies over to their house and cooked dinner for them last night. And, and Becky sent me a text that says, Bear wants to see Papa. I texted back, Bear wants to see Papa or Mama wants to see Papa? <laughs> you know, the mamas and the papas. And so she says, no, he came and brought my phone to me. He says, Papa, Papa. So we FaceTimed and... Bear keeps leaning up and kissing the phone, leaning up and kissing the phone. And, and I just, I knew what I was preaching on. I was like, heaven is going to be so magnified because life is all about those relationships of love. Can you say amen? It's going to be magnified. So to those of you that are young, listen to this final verse before I pray. You, are young, you who are young, Make the most of your youth. Relish your youthful vigor. Follow the impulses of your heart. If something looks good to you, pursue it. But know also that not just anything goes. You have to answer to God for every last bit of it. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray with you before you go home. Yesterday at the funeral... The dad of the young man who died told me, he says, Pastor, 
while my son was still on life support before they removed the life support from him. Five of his friends came to the hospital, and he said it was obvious that some of them were high. And they asked if they could just sit with my son in intensive care. And he said in a few minutes, they asked the nurse, was there a chaplain in the hospital? They wanted somebody to come and pray with them. And of course, the chaplain came up and prayed with them. But maybe for the first time in the lives of those young people, they understood that our choices now are magnified in eternity. As I watched all those young people passing by his casket yesterday, this is not an exaggeration. I felt physical pain in my heart. Our choices are magnified. Something happens immediately after you die. You either rejoice or you suffer. For those that are left behind, we grieve. We grieve with hope. But we also know this this morning. Death is not our friend. And we're going to make every single moment of our life count. You can do that by praying for your children, praying for your grandchildren, praying for me as your pastor that God will give me boldness and discernment to preach the gospel in a way that will be persuasive to bring lost people to Jesus. You can do that by bringing people with you to church. Last week I told you something I quoted from the LA Times. The speaker said in the Times, says, if you fail to bring your children to church, you're shooting them in the leg. And you're shooting your grandchildren in the heart. There's something powerful about us gathering weekly to worship and to serve the Lord and to have our children and grandchildren in church because eternity is a long, long, long time. So let me pray with you this morning before you go home. Oh, Father, thank you for your amazing love and your goodness to us. Thank you for making a way because you don't want anyone to perish. Hell wasn't meant for human beings. So I pray that today that as we live in the goodness of God that we will recognize that the rain falls and the sun shines because you give to the just and the unjust. And I pray that while it's yet called today, we will put our faith in you. We will trust in you, Jesus. And that those of us who have trusted in you, it will not be about raising our standard of living, but it will be about raising our standard of giving of our time, our talent, our testimony or our life story, and our treasure so that you might be glorified and magnified in the lives of others. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, would you pray this prayer with me right now? Say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me so much. 
Thank you for loving my children so much. Oh, God, thank you for loving the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in you would not perish but have everlasting life. And as much as I know how, I commit my life to you today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. Thank you for joining us today for Woodland Church and our YouTube channel. I hope you'll take a moment and click that subscribe button and also click the notifications bell so that you'll know when new things are posted. We're always putting new material up so that you can be a part of everything that's going on. We want to share those with you and we hope that they will encourage you and strengthen you in your faith as you watch. You can also find out more about Woodland Church by going to our website at woodland.church. You can find out all about us and also upcoming events. Again, thank you for joining us today.